Good morning again, folks. Uh, I'm going to start off with something a wee bit different this morning, and that's announcements. Well, I haven't done announcements in like three months, so uh, here's some announcements for you. Um, Fit Defence is going to be happening on Monday. Um, now, by Fit Defence, I, I mean uh, the team are going to be recording something and putting up on, on Facebook and social media for you to follow along with. Um, so keep an eye on that on, on Facebook. Um, on Monday with, with times and all. I'm not sure exactly what time it'll go up at. So keep an eye on that and uh, um, yeah, ho hopefully try and take uh, play a part if you can. Um, also, please remember, keep staying safe, folks. Uh, as regulations ease, um, the temptation is to, to um, <laughs> let get, get all the frustration out and go, go well. But um, please be careful. Um, still reach out to one another, still look out for one another, uh, call on one another, send text messages and all the rest of it. The, the virus is still there. It's still killing people. And so please uh, still be compassionate, be careful, be kind. Um, and if you're in a position to, remember the local food bank as well. Um, I've got a Zoom call on Wednesday, I think it is. Uh, and we'll be looking to see how some of the local churches can help uh, families who are depending on school meals uh, as that support will be stopping over the summer months. Um, but also, final announcement, uh, give thanks, folks. Uh, we're in a position where um, I've been able to calculate that one in five adults in our church are NHS or frontline workers of some sort. Yet not one person in our church, as far as I know, has contracted this uh, virus. So praise God for his goodness and for his protection. We're starting a new series today. Uh, I started the Running on Empty series, not knowing how long I was uh, needing to stretch it. But I'll be honest, starting to run it a few on that when I was running on empty. Uh, only so many car metaphors I could come up with in relation to keep going. So we're starting something new today and we'll be asking a very simple question every Sunday and every Wednesday and that is, what is God's will for my life? We read verses and we talk to each other and we talk about God's will, we talk about God's plan for people but is there something that we can get a hold of and anchor ourselves in? Is there a way of saying for certain, I am fulfilling God's will for my life? Well, I've long been convinced that God's will for our lives is not so much fixed on where we are in terms of our address or, or where we work. I'm convinced that God is far more concerned and interested in who we are than and who we are in our jobs, who we are with our friends than just the, the geography. So in the series, I've got 10 words that are going to summarise your part in God's plan. And we'll cover things like being sanctified, to be satisfied, to be serving. And I believe we can get a great idea of who God wants us to be. But look, it's not a 10-step program. It's not like you go from one step, you can take it off, not think about it again. Go on to the next step, take it off and go on to the next one. And work your way through and you end up in, in the centre of God's will. It doesn't work like that in reality. Experience tells us it doesn't work as easily as that. There are going to be overlap in, in some of these steps. But what I would say is that I think this series will be a natural progression in what we should see in the life of a Christian uh, living out God's plan for their life. So let's start off with one that may seem very obvious. But what does God want for your life? Well, to start with, he wants you to be saved. 
<laughs> right, really easy one to start off with. First Timothy 2 verse 4 says, God wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And just in case you don't believe him, we read it again in Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God wants everyone to be saved. So what's God's will for your life? He wants you to be saved. Now, we could just maybe finish off now and go happy days, four and a half minutes talk. Result, see us all next time. For some people, that is enough. But it's not enough for some people if you don't understand the terminology. You need to understand that it does not mean that everyone is going to go to heaven no matter what. It's talking about people of every type, that everyone without distinction. So everyone can be saved. Rich, poor, black, white, religious, non-religious, the clean living, the addict. Anyone can be saved. Everyone can be saved. There is nobody beyond the reach of God's forgiveness. So why doesn't everyone go to heaven then? Because not everyone hears the message. Not everyone understands the message. Not everyone accepts the message. And God's not going to force himself on you or anyone else. He wants you to be saved. But he has decreed that while his invitation remains open to all, it can only be received freely by those who want him too. So if we're saying that God wants you to be saved, maybe a better idea is focusing on the idea, not of God wanting or God willing and what that means, but actually, what does it mean to be saved? What does that actually mean? So that's our, our first big question then this morning. God wants you to be saved, but what are we talking about when we talk about getting saved? A few weeks ago, uh, I did a kids talk with my dog, Poppy. Uh, she, um, let me tell you a bit about her. We got her when she was eight weeks. She's eight years old now, but she was a rescue. Now, two things that I know about dogs. Big dogs are better than small dogs. And number two, all dogs are better than cats. It's it's just fact, okay? So Ruth and I, we were looking for a dog and being very gospel-centered, we wanted to rescue a dog. The gospel's all about rescue. So yeah, I was, I was all in, but have you ever been to some of these like rescue shelters for, for like the dogs and all? There's some real hardcore emotional blackmail going on. You get some sweet looking volunteer coming up to you and she's got pictures of dogs that are giving you that look, you know, like, please save my life. And then the girls say, you know, said to me, oh, this is Diesel. She loves children. You know, she loves Frisbee and, you know, she loves Jesus. <laughs> and you think, oh, that's so nice. And then they say, but Diesel's going to die on Tuesday. And you go, no, Diesel, no, I love her. And all of a sudden, they have you in the palm of their hands. Okay, tell me what, what do I need to do to save this dog's life? And all of a sudden, they're, they're talking about becoming Diesel's forever family. As in, you've got a forever commitment to this dog. Not like that family before that didn't want her. You can be the forever family. So... We got Diesel, but she got a new family, forever family, and she got a new name, Poppy. But you see, everyone loves a rescue story. And the Bible tells of the greatest rescue story ever of a God who will come in love and rescue those he loves, give them a new name, and give them a forever family. It's why as Christians we talk about being adopted by God and being brought into his family. It's a rescue from life to death, but also from lost to found, from not belonging to belonging. 
Now, I understand this isn't the strongest transition I've maybe ever made, and I've maybe lost the cat people along the way. They've all turned off by now. But if I can point all the dog people to Jesus, that counts as revival, okay? So I, I'm, I'm not worried. But you see, we love these rescue stories because it's at the heart of our creator and he has woven this into us. He longs to be our rescuer, to give us a new name, forever family. And that just resonates with us as his creation. Now, turn with me then to Ephesians chapter 2 as we talk a wee bit more about this rescue. Because in Ephesians 2, Paul, who wrote it, is contrasting Paul's life, uh, people's life before the rescue to their life after the rescue. And in doing so, there's two types of rescue. There's two plans, two ways of trying to get saved. The first is works and the other is grace. And Paul puts them side by side here. And what we can say is, well, every religion in the world says it goes for option one, works. But Christianity alone says, no, we're going to trust in grace. Works is about how we can try and rescue ourselves, that we can be our own saviour. And that turn comes out in all sorts of different ways. In Buddhism, if we cease from desires, then we can save ourselves. In Hinduism, we can achieve enlightenment by disciplines and living in unity with a divine force. In Islam, we're told if we live a life of holy deeds, we'll be saved. They're talking about the five pillars. In Judaism, as long as we live a moral life according to the law, well, that totally depends on you then. Judaism stresses that salvation can't be obtained by anyone else or invoking a deity. And, and for a lot of people in the UK, that's what they sign up to. Simply living a good life is enough. And according to some funerals that I've attended, all, you, all that's needed for some people to go to heaven is for them to die. Because all you hear is, well, they've gone to a better place. That works. That, based on what we do in this life, how we live, how we will receive our reward then, it's all really down to us. But grace says that we're not saved by our own works. Rather, we're saved by the works of Jesus. So Christianity is not saying that good works are bad. What we are saying is, whose works are we relying on? Because only the work of Jesus can save you. The whole story of the Bible is that our works and our own motives have not brought us freedom, but instead have only got us wrapped up in more and more chains. Like a prisoner always trying to escape and then getting caught, they end up in tighter and tighter restrictions. That's where our works gets us. But grace says that the prisoner can go free because the punishment has already been served by Christ. Why? Because he's without sin. He's the perfect spotless sacrifice and God laid on him the iniquities of us all and it is his work that saves not ours it's his life that saves not ours it's his death that saves not ours it's his victory not ours the very name for jesus means rescue remember going back to your christmas lessons we read that you will call his name jesus for he will save his people from their sins the name points to his mission he's going to be a rescuer and so here's the thing. It's not about how much faith that you do have. It's about what you put that faith in. You can be totally convinced of something and maybe even be more convinced in your worldview than some Christians are. And they've had a few knocks and they've got doubts and they've got questions. But it's not about the quantity or even the quality of your faith. It's the focus of your faith that saves. You can be totally convinced that you can be good enough to save yourself it doesn't matter how much faith you have in yourself. If you put your faith in the wrong place, it's not going to work. He alone can rescue. He alone can save. 
So let's read a couple of verses from Ephesians chapter 2. Look at verse 5. It says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made alive, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And then in verse 8 it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. In other words, saving faith is trusting in Christ's work, not our own work. Saved by grace is trusting in the finished work of Christ. Saved by works is trying to make it on your own steam. So salvation, according to the Bible, being saved, it's got zero to do with who you are and what you have done or anything that you're going to try to do. And everything to do with who Christ is and what he has done. That's why it's called salvation by grace. Because we've done nothing to merit it. We've done nothing to contribute. It's totally unmerited, undeserving. And it coming from a place of unbounding love and favour of God towards you. So when we put that together, God wants to save us. He wants to save you. And by saving us, it means he shows undeserving grace. So let's read Ephesians 2, 1 to 8, with that in mind. It says, you are dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power and of the air, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So that's what it was like before we were saved. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works that anyone may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we've covered the fact then that God wants you to be saved. Whoever you are listening to this, God wants you to be saved. He wants to save you. What does that mean? It means you need to trust in the finished work of Christ and not your own goodness. But then that leads to another question. Well, what does being saved look like then? Well, such is the grace of God. It can be understood in the past, present, and the future. So a Christian can say, speaking in the past tense, I am saved. I have been saved. It's something that happened. I can point to a moment in my life whenever I received that grace, when I turned away from depending on myself and depending on Christ. That is when the grace of Christ removed the penalty of sin. I am saved. So even though I'm not perfect, there's no now no condemnation for those who believe, for those who are in Christ. The penalty of sin has been removed. I am saved. Which means God's never going to punish me for the residue of sin in my life. Okay, so I'm never going to get to a point where God's going to say, you know what, Jeff, you've messed up far too many times. You've, you, you've screwed up so many times. I'm unsaving you. I'm taking away your salvation. No, the penalty of sin has been removed. There's no condemnation. I have been saved. I have my forever family. Now, that doesn't mean there's no consequences for my sin, okay? But I'm saved from the penalty of sin, the past. But then we're also being saved, present tense. The Christian can say, I am currently being saved. That's not about the penalty of sin. This is about the power of sin. Ephesians 2.5 talks about even though we were dead in sin, we've been made alive in Christ. We have a new life. 
we are born again and with the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the power in us is greater than the temptation to sin that is around us. And so maybe before getting saved, you had a tendency to lie, uh, to cheat, to do whatever. And there's a tendency to go back to the chains. The power of the Holy Spirit is greater than the power of sin and leads us towards right living, towards breaking those chains in our lives, not putting more on. The temptation is there. The temptation to drift back towards the chains is strong. And let's be very honest, there's no perfect Christians. But the Holy Spirit will show that there is a progress in the life of a Christian. So we are being saved. The penalty is gone, done. And we're still working and fighting against that power of sin in our lives with God's help. So please understand this. Eternal life is not something that happens the moment you die, that someone will say, you're free now, oh, okay, they've gone into eternal life. No, that's not how it works. It's something that begins in the moment you accept Christ in your life and you start to live by grace instead of by works. And we're different in that moment. The Spirit in us helps us break those old chains and break those old habits and free ourselves from the chains of sin and the power that it had on our lives. So we're saved in the past tense, the penalty of sin. I have been saved. We're saved in the present tense. I am the power of sin is loosening in my life and I'm becoming more like Christ and less like the world around me. But then there's also the future sense where a Christian can say, I will be saved from the presence of sin. Uh, and this is a, a time that will come when the life we've always wanted will, will be realised. What we've always longed for will be realised. A life that every charity worker and activist is fighting for right now. A life without injustice, a life without war, a life without suffering. But we can't achieve it in this lifetime. For those who are in Christ's grace will bring a new life and a new home. And the Bible says that heaven will be a place without sin, without suffering, without sickness. That in heaven there will be no death, devastation or destruction. It will be an uncorrupted world and it is called the kingdom of God. And the Christian will not be perfect until then. Until then we fight with the presence of sin in our lives. We fight the temptation. But we are saved from the penalty and power of sin. And we know with assurance and complete confidence that ahead of us lies the kingdom of God where we will finally enjoy freedom from the presence of sin. That's what it means to be saved, folks. God's rescue in the past, present and future sense, which means it's not just a decision you make in a meeting. It's not just you putting up a hand or talking to someone or praying a prayer. It means that no sin that you have done in your past and no amount of sin or mistakes from now on can ever unsave you. It's not a gospel of works. It's a gospel of undeserved favour, grace. So my question then is this, are you saved by grace? You might say, well, Jeff, I'm, I'm religious. It's not enough. I'm clean living. It's not enough. I'm quite a spiritual person. It's not enough. I'm trying my best. Look, that's great, but it's not enough. Our works are not enough, but the work of Christ is enough because it starts with the fact that we are not enough. But grace is available and Christ is sufficient for us. So God's will for you. He wants you to be saved. So he sent a rescuer. What does that mean? It means grace. And what does that look like? It looks total. It deals with the past, present and future issues of our sin. And eventually we can look forward to being free of it completely. 
And Pastor Paul, as he writes this letter to the Ephesians, assumes that people are going to have some questions like maybe you have about this. And the big question is, okay, but save from what? I mean, that's a really good question. And this is where we'll finish this morning. Because getting saved means nothing unless you actually think you're in danger. So it's always worth asking, okay, preacher, saved from what? Redeemed from what? Why do I need a rescuer? I'm fine. Because if you don't think you're in danger, you're never going to take action. People don't just sit on their sofa screaming for rescue for no reason. But they will if they know their house is on fire. A guy in a car crash will call for an ambulance. Someone drowning will call for a lifeguard. Why? Because they know they're in danger. They know they can't save themselves. They need someone to step in and rescue them. So Paul does that in Ephesians 2. Again, giving us this information. Okay, And in verse 1 he says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. See, we know that death is a result of sin. And so for the Christian who will be saved from the presence of sin, they'll not die. So he's talking to people here, remember, who he's contrasting their old life before they were saved to who they are now. He's contrasting these two identities. He says, you were dead in trespasses. Now, let me just use that phrase because there's about six things that he says that were saved from the first three verses. We're not going to go through them all, okay? But... Just that phrase. Let me take that phrase. See, a Christian, uh, before you're before you're saved, you're under this death sentence. Remember, you know, if you ever watch some of these movies, you know, with the prison guards in, in America, and they're taking someone off to, to death row to be executed, they'll say, "Dead man walking, dead man walking." Well, you can argue, well, technically, they're not dead, but you're really playing around with the technicality. Such is the reality of the death sentence upon them. And the same is what the Bible says. It says, look, you're a dead man walking. You're a dead woman walking because of the penalty of sin that's on you. And so you're in danger here unless there's a significant change in your life. But as a Christian, you will not die because you have been saved from the penalty and the power and the presence of sin. And death will be no more. Let me give you an example. Take your phone or your iPad, your laptop, whatever. You charge it up. And then when you unplug it and you use it, eventually what happens? It'll die. You and I are like that. You and I are not independent creatures. We are dependent. And when we sin and when we live for ourselves, we're disconnected from the power source. And if we keep going that way without reconnecting to God, we will die. And this is why you can be physically alive, but in the cycle of being spiritually dead. This is how the Bible explains our condition. Spiritually dead, even though we're still physically alive. But when your body dies, that spiritual condition will endure. So all those who are alive in Christ go on to the kingdom and they're safe from the, and experience the, the freedom from that presence of sin. But those who are spiritually dead will then experience an eternal death. Now I know not everyone likes this kind of talk, and feel that it's not important but i feel it's so necessary in 2020 to start using this language again because people have lost the seriousness of sin the danger of sin for if sin isn't a big deal then there's no need to be saved then there's no need for a savior and christ died for nothing so we need to understand and, and church i'm talking to you as well here not just people who aren't saved we need to get back to appreciating what it is we are saved from and what it is that we're saved into this is not just a lifestyle upgrade like what it's like when you, your house first got wi-fi or when you bought your first car and you've got this wee bit of freedom and it's like oh life's so much better now no we are saved from eternal death because we have received eternal 
life. And let me give you uh, one more from Ephesians 2. It says we're dead in trespasses or, or transgressions, depending on your Bible version. Nobody really talks about trespasses a- anymore, but it's a word that's used in relation to sin. What we think, our motivations, the wrong things we do, the good things that we don't do. But what does it mean? Well, imagine going for a walk in a countryside and you come across a sign that says private property, no trespassing. You realise in reading that, that there's a line here that you can't cross or you'll be trespassing. You cross that line, you know there's going to be consequences. And so too, the Bible is full of signs. Don't cross this line. Don't cross this line. Don't cross this line. Don't trespass. But I wonder, where is it in your life that you've constantly been trespassing? Where have you been constantly crossing the line? I mean, normally we're so much better at pointing out in others than ourselves. If I asked you, so who, who crossed the line with you? Right, well, I come to the laptop. Here comes the PowerPoint presentation, the folder. You've got times, you've got dates. It was a Thursday. It was 16 degrees. He was wearing a blue jumper. I was wearing this. And, and you've got all the information because you remember. And sin is, is whenever we have crossed the line with God. And just as we don't like it when people cross the line with us, so too God takes it seriously when we do it to him. And so the Bible says that we are all sinners. We are all transgressors. We're all trespassers. We are people who have crossed that line. And what people have decided to do instead of obeying the sign and saying, okay, right, well, I shouldn't cross that line. What society has said was, okay, right, well, I'm going to just move the sign. I've decided that it isn't trespassing and I'm just going to keep moving the sign to give myself room to do what I want to do. But here's the thing. As a, as a walker, I don't have the right to decide if I'm trespassing or not. It's the landowner who owns the land who gets to decide. So whether I pay attention to the sign or not, whether I move the sign or not, I'm still trespassing. Morality isn't decided by the majority. Morality isn't decided by the majority, but by the moral law giver. But people feel like the Bible, with all its warning signs, is just a big killjoy. It doesn't always have to be adhered to. And we touched on this a wee bit last time with Solomon. But in every other walk of life, we understand that we need rules. We understand why there needs to be rules. As a father of two girls, and with a third due in November. I understand that I need rules for my family. Now, my three rules are dead easy, but I take them dead serious. Number one, be kind. Number two, have fun. Number three, stay safe. Everything else can pretty much filter in under those uh, the umbrella of those three rules. Is what you're doing kind? Is it safe? Is everyone involved going to enjoy it? Is it fun for everyone? It, it covers a lot of area. Now, are those the rules of an unloving parent? No, I, I don't think anyone would think that. It's for their good. I remember growing up and wanting to do something and I remember you know it's maybe a wee bit of a grey area-ish and I say to dad like oh listen but everyone else is doing it never made a big impact on him because as a parent he knew that he had to put in place the rules that he felt that was best for me and my sisters you see here's the thing God wants to save us but the reality is he often needs to save us from ourselves we're so determined to go and do our own thing and push back against the rules and move the sign and trespass to cross the line, to see how close we can get. And I'm finishing now. I've only scraped the surface of why God wants to save you and why he, and what he wants to save us from. As I said, Paul mentioned six in that text. I've touched on two. But for now, folks, God loves you so, so much. 
but you are in danger. You are in chains of sin and you have transgressed. You're a dead man, a dead woman walking. The penalty of sin is real. But because of God's love, he wants to rescue you. He wants to save you. He wants to give you a new name, to call you son, to call you daughter and adopt you into his forever family and save you from the penalty, the power and the presence of sin. But the question remains, will you depend on your works or on the finished work of Christ? Are you saved? God bless.